The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So I'm happy to get to be with you here uh, today. I was last with your community, actually, um, helping uh, guide a retreat with Andrea that was at um, Hidden Villa, which was um, very lovely. And I see many, a couple people from that retreat here. Um, along with, uh, we got to share the space with the farm animals, and um, there were a lot of new piglets on that uh, retreat also. So that was very joyful. So today I'd like to talk with you about humility and delusion. And delusion is probably a term that those of you who have been coming to Dharma talks or listening to them uh, are pretty familiar with. Um, But humility is not actually one that uh, I've heard spoken about that much explicitly uh, in Buddhist teachings. Uh, But it's one that has resonated for me in my own practice and spiritual path a lot. And so I was reflecting about that and uh, what it means and uh, in what way is it there actually in the teachings in some way that might not be explicitly called that in the same way. So many of you are probably familiar from uh, other religious traditions that you were probably brought up in about humility, right? So it's in the Christian tradition, that's really a big one, kind of drummed into you. So, for example, in Beatitudes, uh, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit or the humble, um, for they shall, the kingdom of heaven is theirs, or blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, or, you know, this kind of thing of encouraging uh, humility, So I think one of the reasons that it's not there as explicitly in the Buddhist teachings uh, is basically because it comes from, um, the Buddhist teachings come from cultures, Asian cultures, in which um, that's sort of part of the cultural teaching is of humility. Uh, And my own family is from Sri Lanka, and I see that being sort of taught in a variety of ways, even to the kids who are, uh, I see, being uh, grown up and... uh, it really is like taught about um, paying attention to uh, when you're putting yourself above others or when you're trying to put your own needs above of the groups or um, being able to pay attention to what is actually more harmonious for uh, the rest of uh, the people or society or the group. You could say that the opposite of humility is uh, pride or conceit or arrogance. And uh, another way of thinking about this also is uh, selflessness. Right. So selflessness is there, actually, in the Buddhist teachings, uh, anatta, right, seeing into the lack of solidity of self. Uh, and this is actually one of the primary uh, delusions that we carry around, is that uh, there is this separate me that's moving through the world and that has to actually fend off others and get stuff from myself and uh, basically get into this conflicted relationship with uh, anyone or anything that we encounter. So this, this mana or pride or conceit or arrogance uh, is interesting in the, the teachings of the Buddha because uh, usually you'll think about that as in like arrogance when you think like, oh, I'm better than other people. I'm better than others and they're worse than me. The Buddha actually points this out in three different ways. So it's considered this kind of uh, conceit not only to think that you're better than other people, actually also to think that you're worse than other people. So, you know, this sort of low self-esteem thing of like, oh, everyone else is better than me, I can't do this. That also is a form of conceit. So that also is actually like, oh, here's me separate from others, and I am like this, and others are like that. So that's also considered delusion and false and not actually true. The third one is even more perplexing. So the third one is actually even to say, oh, I am equal to others, is also considered a delusion. So considering yourself better 
is conceit, consider yourself worse than, lower than, but actually even saying like, oh yeah, I'm exactly equal to everyone. You know? Again, it's, it's this, this duality, sort of perceiving like, oh, here's me and here's everyone and I'm the same as them. So still in that, there's a, there's a sense of like, oh, there's a separation of me and others. And also, um, most notably, I think there's the comparing mind. So there's this comparing mind, which is uh, constantly uh, spinning and trying to create this sense of security in the world, either by sometimes saying I'm better than, right? But sometimes saying like, oh, no, I'm equal to everyone. Yeah, yeah, we're all the same. It's, it's all good because we're all the same. Right? But even in that, there's an insecurity because you could be at the moment all the same, but then... You know, in the, the constantly changing uh, world of statuses, sometimes you could be up and sometimes you could be down. So your stocks could rise and fall. So it's not actually, you know, a stable place also to, uh, to uh, build your sense of security. So what is it that's actually true then? Uh, so we're not better than others. We're not worse than others. We're not even equal to others. So what is actually true, right? It's like what's, what's left in that, uh, in that schema? Uh, and it actually, like in many of the, the kind of Buddhist teachings, it just kind of breaks that whole schema open. You know, like there is actually not some separate self to be comparing. Yeah, actually everything comes together because of different causes and conditions. And uh, one of my um, favorite translations of the Dharma is that it's the truth of the way things are. So the truth of how things are, just nature. So nature is now that there's a giant helicopter uh, circling. <laughs> <laughs> and that's because of that there's some loud sound, right? And that's happening for some, some reason and that's part of our environment. And you know, trying to resist that or pretend it's not there is, uh, is suffering. And uh, just seeing that that's there is the truth. Right? So the Dharma, I think, is just uh, understanding more and more the truth of the way things are and actually aligning ourselves more and more with that truth in our actions, in our understanding, in our mind. Now, you could notice in the body more easily, maybe, that the body is part of nature. So, uh, you know, it's, and, and that there's an interconnection. So, uh, you know, there's an understanding of genetics, and it's like, oh, yeah, you get certain characteristics of your body from uh, your ancestors or from your parents, and how tall you are, and what color hair you ha- have, and maybe like the shape of your nose, and, you know, all this kind of thing. It's just sort of like conditioned, right? Then, of course, there's some part that's conditioned from your current activities. So what kind of food you eat or how much you stay in the sun or how much you exercise also shapes your physical body. But again, it's all different causes, conditions, creating you know, what we call a self. And it's not to say that this is not true, that they're not sort of unique, unique uh, movements of nature in manifesting in each of us. So this is true. But there's not sort of a separate individual uh, entity machinating this. What we're made of is basically the food and water, physically, right? Physically, we're made of the food and water that we take in, and then how that uh, builds our systems, our bones, our muscles, our uh, circulatory system, everything. And it's also all constantly changing. So I think I've heard that um, you, you know, our bodies are three-quarter made of water, and uh, actually we replenish the water supply like uh, every seven days. You know, so like if you go somewhere on, on a trip for seven days, within that time you sort of change your whole physical makeup to be the water from that system. You know, so right now we might all be made of hetch hetchy water, but uh, <laughs> I actually just came back from the East Coast, so I'm partly made of New York water now, you know, uh, from that time. Right? But then what about the mind? So the mind is a place in which we also largely identify and feel like, oh, this is me, you know, this is me, this is mine, right? Uh, when you actually pay attention to the mind more closely, though, you can also see that 
uh, that which is arising is conditioned. Right? The thoughts that arise just happen on their own. For example, in this period of time in which we were sitting just uh, this, this last 45 minutes, um, or those of you who are here earlier also, uh, you know, did you actually plan the range of thoughts that arose in sequence? Right. So probably not. You're sitting here and then maybe some stray thought arose, some memory of something that you did, or then there's some plan about what you're going to do later today, and then there's something that you're worried about, and then there's... Uh, the sound, and then there's a thought about that, like, is that actually a helicopter, is it not? You know, it just comes. It's just coming, right? Uh, so it's not like you sat down and said, like, well, okay, at the first, first ten minutes I'll think about my uh, childhood, then I'll move on to planning, then I'll, right? It's just coming like this, too. So just seeing that, seeing how this arises, not just in your practice, formal practice, but actually just in your life, is very helpful to cut through this sense of, oh yeah, here's this sense of me and my separate self. So I, I was um, driving in San Francisco uh, this week, and I stopped at a stoplight in um, Soma area, and I saw this guy um, walking over to this a truck that was a uh, DPW, Department of Public Works truck, and then give the person uh, something uh, in the truck, like he had this tray and he handed her something. <laughs> and I saw that it was like a deviled egg. And uh, I thought, oh, that's funny. I wonder if that was like a planned deviled egg drop-off thing or, you know... <laughs> Whatever. And then uh, the guy came over and he gave me a deviled egg, too. And um, so I stopped at the stoplight. He's handing out deviled eggs. I asked, well, what's, what's this about? And he's wearing a white uniform. He said, oh, we're from the culinary school. And so, you know, we made these deviled eggs. And I saw another guy on that side giving out deviled eggs to other people there, right? Um, and it was very sweet. You know, he gave me the deviled egg. It was a very nice deviled egg. And um, it's all piped and little capers and some paprika or something. Um, and he seemed very proud of it, too. You know, he was from this culinary school, they just made this. So I, so I took it. And uh, for me also, as part of my practice, I'm trying to um, receive Donna graciously. So, you know, I was like, oh, this guy's offering a devil. So I took it. And so then I started driving, and I was about to bite into it. And then this thought arose in my head that was clearly my mother's voice saying, like, don't, don't eat the egg. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I just spent time with my mom, so his voice is louder. He was like, don't eat the egg. You know? You know, don't eat food that random strangers have given to you, you know. So then I thought about it. I was like, well, you know, I, mean, I don't think there was, like, razor blades or something. I think it seemed fine. But th- and then I heard my aunt's voice, you know, saying, like, you know, you don't know how many people have touched that egg. You know, it's like this, uh, you know, and then I was in, I was in a, a confusion with the eggs. I was holding the egg and driving and trying to figure out, should I eat it, should I not eat it, you know. Um, I thought maybe I should give it to someone else. But then now uh, two people then have touched it that didn't have gloves on. And maybe I'll encounter a dog who would like the egg, you know. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, this, you can see sometimes these thoughts arise, and it's like, oh, yeah, these thoughts are, you know, I think, oh, these are my thoughts. But sometimes it's more clear, like, oh, yeah, thoughts are just arising. You know, thoughts are just arising, and then we uh, engage with them in some way. Or, uh, you know, it's, and it's very humbling to see this. So um, I don't know if how many people here have uh, used the web service called Pandora. It's like a, so it's a website where you can put in a, um, a song that you like, so, for example, you could put in, like, Yellow Submarine by the Beatles or something. And then it will actually sort of analyze that song, and it will come up with all different songs that are kind of like that in some way and create, play a radio station for you. So it'll play a lot of songs that are like that. Um, and uh, it's, it's an interesting thing, and it actually kind of works. So I, I'd put in some song, and it always surprises me how much I like the other songs that they come up with. And they usually give you a little analysis, like, oh, you know, because you liked, you know, you like Dog Days Are Over by Florence and the Machine because there's acoustic and 
uh, rhythms and some uh, deep harmonies and blah, 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 you know, female vocals, whatever, right? And then they play something else and like, oh, I like that song too. Like, oh, I didn't know that song was like that song, you know, and so on. But after a while, I started to realize, like, oh, wow, I'm actually very predictable, isn't it? <laughs> you know, like, actually, these songs that I like, I didn't, re- I didn't really realize that, you know, like, 1901 by Phoenix is similar to Dog Days Are Over, but they're on the same station, and, you know, it's totally true that there's a similar thing in them. So it cuts through this sense of, like, oh, I'm an individual. I'm making these separate choices, and uh, I'm so special and unique, and it's like, no, actually, very predictable, you know. <laughs> There's some patterns that are running, you know, we're all just actually running patterns of conditioning, um, some of which are neutral, like there's nothing necessarily more or less good about liking, you know, Yellow Submarine versus The Dog Days Are Over, I don't think, you know, there's nothing uh, ethically problematic about that. But it's just interesting to see, like, it's just playing out, you know, these patterns are playing out. Or uh, even more humbling uh, recently, so I was, in the, I was on the East Coast and I r- met someone who is an ex-girlfriend of mine, um, but is a friend of mine. And, uh, you know, we're talking, and then she told me about someone who she's involved with, uh, new. And uh, it actually is someone who um, uh, actually has dated many, we've dated many of the same people, you know, in the past. And so that also gave me pause. It was just like Pandora. It's like, oh, I'm just running some program, you know? <laughs> Like, uh, you know, I think that I'm moving around in the world in this very unique individual way, but clearly, like, uh, you know, her new uh, partner and I are running the same program. (laughs) And these other people are also running the same program, and it's just, you know, it's just, like, playing out, playing out like that, you know. Uh, So it's it's just humbling to see that, you know. And um, there's some of those patterns that are neutral, there's some of those patterns that are more wholesome, there's some of those patterns that are more unwholesome, uh, I feel like in my own practice it's just been just seeing those and really being humbled by the, the strength and power of those patterns of conditioning as they play out in all these myriad of ways, in small ways, in large ways, uh, in physical mannerisms, in that which arises, in our mental process, in the way that we say things, in what we say, you know, all of that. Uh, And there's a sense of, in this humility of it, of just resting in not knowing that is actually very helpful. You know? So the, the opposite of humility is actually this sense of arrogance, this sense of like, oh, I know. You know I know how things are. I know this. I know that. Right? The sense of uh, sureness. Um, but this, it's a sense of sureness based on a false idea that we are actually in control in a certain way. Right? So actually a, a, a deeper sense of security can be from resting in the truth of not knowing. So resting in the truth that we don't actually know what's going to happen in the next moment, and that actually these patterns of conditioning that are playing out within us are really uh, very deeply entrenched, and there are more and more layers of this you know, going on. So I've been uh, doing this practice for over 20 years now, and uh, I keep seeing new layers of this conditioning you know, as it uh, is uh, emerging, and just keep learning, keep seeing these things. So it just continues to throw me back on a sense of humility of like, wow, you know, the, the, there's a mystery to it and the conditioning is very, very deep. You know? So that can be a, a motivation to continue to pay attention is one thing, right? Not to be like, oh yeah, and I'm a teacher and I know this and, you know, mm-hmm. people listen to me and they tape my talk. You know, it's like, no, pay attention, you know? Like the more that I see, the more that I, that, that is true. Uh, 
there's a there's a sense of um, actually I think even more security in resting and not knowing, <laughs> which is actually the truth of how things are, and it's actually more fun, you know, because the truth is like you don't know what's going to happen, you know, you don't know what's going to happen next. Someone's going to give you a deviled egg at the stoplight, you know. It's just like <laughs> what's you know you don't know what's happening, and if you're kind of stuck in your idea of how things are, you're often blocking out the actual wonder of what could be. You know, we're caught in like oh here's me and here's you and. Here's how I'm going to interact with you, and I already know who you are, so I know what you're going to say. And you know, it's all very solid and um, actually false. But we live so much in this world of um, projections, and it's helpful also to see that. So here's where you know we can see delusion playing out, sort of over and over again. Uh, one of my favorite sort of anecdotes about this, or stories about this, is um, about you know a person who goes into a cave and then paints the picture of a tiger. And then looks at the tiger picture and goes, ah, tiger, and runs out of the cave <laughs> screaming, you know. Uh, and this is actually what we do so often in our minds, you know. So in our mind, a thought arises of something that has not actually happened. Uh, and it's a thought that's actually a scary thing or a thing to worry about or whatever. And it's just a thought, right? It's, it's a thought. It's just that. It could be an, uh, as equally a neutral thought. But the neutral thoughts we let come and go. But this thought, like, we attach to, we cling to it. We believe in it, and so we run from that thing. You know, it's exactly the same as this uh, painting the picture of the tiger. We believe in that, and then we react to it, and then we're living in this imagined world. You know, we're living in the labyrinths of delusion in our mind in this way. Or the opposite side. There's a, you know, a painting that, that, that's a beautiful one, and then we believe in that, and we live in that cave of delusion, and we build uh, you know, shrines there and uh, inhabit that. So in, instead of actually being able to live freely in the world, you know, with awareness and see what's actually there to be encountered, we live in our projections, you know, so much of the time. And I think so much of our, actually, relationships with other human beings are based on this. They're kind of like projections meeting each other, you know. It's, it's actually a, a rare and beautiful thing to have a true moment of actual free intimacy with someone, you know, actually just real relationship with another human being, like whoever that is. But it's very possible. I think it's possible to do that. And I think that's actually our practice, is meeting each moment as freely as possible, seeing as much as we can what's actually there. And this includes also actually seeing these patterns of delusion as they arise, or these patterns of conditioning. So the words are sometimes confusing because, you know, for example, the word pride uh, which is one of the translations of mana, is a, a negative one. But then um, some of you may know that it actually is Pride Month in San Francisco this uh, month. Maybe down here too. I don't know. It's like, so it's Gay Pride Month, and then next week there's a big parade and stuff like that, right? So that version of pride I take to be like actually a joy in the true manifestation of who one is, right? And that's sort of a counter to the uh, low self-esteem or the like, oh, you don't belong or you don't exist or you shouldn't be here, or something like that, right? So it's not in that word. And also it's true that pride is able to manifest in all different ways. Uh, so, so this mana, this comparing, uh, it's, it's kind of like a, sl- the, the delusion is really like a very slippery, slippery uh, character, so to speak. So you can even be uh, sort of arrogant about humble things, you know, um, so you just notice, you know, don't be fooled by the, the mind if you can. Uh, so I, I met someone who uh, recently who is from L.A. and who works at um, Toyota, uh, the company. And 
I said, oh, I drive a Toyota. Right? And, uh, and she, she said, because she knew us from the Bay Area, you drive a Prius, right? You know, it's like an <laughs> assumption, right? Those, uh, those you know, hippie, green, hybrid drivers. And I said, no, actually, I drive a, a 1995 Toyota Corolla with a cassette deck in it, you know? uh, and, uh, which has you know, uh, 100,000 miles, and I'm the original owner, and you know, so on. And, um, so it was funny. She thought it was funny, too. But then I realized, like, oh, now I actually have pride about having a humble car, you know? <laughs> you know? So you could have pride about having a, a really nice, fancy car, but also you could have pride about having a bad car, too, you know? <laughs> like, oh, look how, you know. Uh, so it's see, you know, see that, see those patterns like that. Or, um, recently I encountered, uh, um, so I teach at Spirit Rock, and I, I was there, and I encountered this monk uh, who was visiting, and... Um, he just happened to be there, and uh, the, some of the staff wanted me to, me to meet him, so they introduced me and said, like, I'm teaching in this retreat here, and um, I guess I didn't look like what the guy thought a teacher uh, would look like, either too young or too female, or I was wearing a baseball hat, a t-shirt, you know. Um, so then he kind of gave me this long lecture about how he didn't, um, he wasn't a teacher, and how he basically gave me a sermon about how he didn't give sermons, because he was too humble to, you know, he didn't put himself up there as a teacher and stuff like that. And uh, it was just funny to see that, you know, and I see uh, my own mind doing that in some ways, too. So uh, it's, of course, more obvious to see someone else's faults than your own, but it's always good when you see, you know, yourself pointing like that, like, you know, the three fingers are pointing back at you. So I was like, all right, this is kind of funny that this is playing out. He's standing in the parking lot lecturing me about how he doesn't like to give lectures, but um, uh, how, in what ways am I doing that as well, right? Like, in what ways does that play out in my life? So I found this, um, this quote from the ninth Dalai Lama. So what is like a smelly fart that... <laughs> yes, this is actually the quote. That although invisible is obvious. <laughs> one's own faults uh, that are precisely as obvious as the effort made to hide them. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of... It's a funny uh, metaphor for it, but it's true. It's like, oh, let's pretend that we don't have these faults. You know, but actually they're kind of obvious to <laughs> uh, certainly others around us, right? And it's not actually helping to continue to pretend that they're not there, right? So again, humility, you know, when we see the ways in which we don't live up to our own ideas or ideals about things, or when we see that, like, we're not actually able to be as generous or as kind or as wise, or when we see ourselves making the same mistake, you know, over and over again, or like getting caught in that same pattern, it's like, okay, be, be humble, see that, you know, allow yourself to be open to that. I think humility also requires a lot of honesty, you know, uh, truthfulness, which is actually a piece that's highlighted in the path, right? Uh, and it requires this mindfulness, this ability to be present, to, to see things just as they are. So also I think um, in, in our effort to cultivate this, this humility, uh, there are practices that are given. So um, practice of generosity, for example, you know, the practice of, of giving of oneself. You know, that's a way of uh, enacting that in some way. Like actually enacting this sense of interconnection. You know, enacting uh, our sense of not like, oh, I'm up here and you're down there, right? At the same time, it's good to observe the mind, of, uh, the mind that's doing that because, you know, as I mentioned, like you could be arrogant about anything. There can also be a sense of uh, separation in the generosity too, right? It's like, oh, I'm really great because I'm giving things, right? Everyone look how generous I am, right? So paying attention to that. But the act of actually giving, of actually opening your hands or of renunciation is a powerful act of training yourself uh, in this humility. 
uh, as is kindness. You know, kindness is uh, taking a moment to be vulnerable and to recognize the vulnerability in someone else and connecting with that. So this is also humility. The Buddhist teachings around, uh, you know, basically recognizing the vulnerability of our life so that all of us, uh, as we incarnate, as we are in a human body, are subject to sickness, are subject to death. So when I was driving down here from San Francisco today, I saw several things that remind me of that. So one was a dead animal in the road, right? It looked like a raccoon or something, right? Uh, And you see this frequently, right? It's like uh, dead animals. And uh, I use that as a reminder. I mean, both I feel compassion for that um, animal, but then also to see, like, oh, yeah, that is the same as me, right? And on a different day, that could be me, right? It's not like... Uh, in better, worse, like, oh, I'm different, I'm separate, I'm, you know, we're all vulnerable in that way. And then we passed uh, passed an accident also. So similar, it's like, oh, yeah, there's someone who, uh, and there was a bunch of ambulances and things, so there's someone who was injured today, right, someone who had this happen to them. And allow yourself to feel the vulnerability of our life, to connect with that. Or even some of the practices that we have in the, the Buddhist center. So the fact that everyone took off their shoes when they came in here. You know, to me, that is some kind of uh, sense of vulnerability or humility that happens. Uh, and I actually like, uh, in, the, in the airports, I don't, I don't like the whole rigmarole about security and stuff, you know, going through the whole thing, but uh, I do appreciate that moment when everyone has to take off their shoes and actually walk through this uh, little gateway, you know. And like, no matter how, you know, if you're a big businessman or you're like some hippie traveler, everyone's got to take off your shoes and walk through that. And there's something humbling about that, you know, just for that moment. And, uh, and you can see how people react to that differently, like some people with more or less grace in doing that. But if you can take that as a humility practice, you know, it's a, it can be helpful. Right? Or even the practice of bowing, you know. So we do this little bow like this or something like this at the end of the um, meditation. Uh, and in... Uh, Asian Buddhist countries, actually, people do usually full bows uh, to prostrations, sort of to the Buddha or to monastics or teachers, you know, which is actually putting your head, you know, on the ground, like clunking down, right? And I remember being resistant to that when I first uh, encountered that, Uh, but there's actually something very powerful about that, I feel now. So actually, you know, the, the body conditions the mind and the mind conditions the body, so in this way, actually, when you're doing the bow, you know, you're taking your head and putting it at the level of the heart and then at the level of the feet, uh, which is actually a very... It's, it's hard to do that and not feel humble when you're doing that. You know, it's like, like moves your body in this way that's like teaching uh, humility. I think, I think there's something very like visceral about that, like almost like, you know, when one dog dominates another dog, they like bite their neck and roll them over or something like that, right? So we're sort of voluntarily choosing to humble the part of us that's arrogant in that way. So you can try that and see. You know, those of you who are sort of allergic to the bowing, I encourage you, even if it's sort of <laughs> privately in your room, like just try it sometime and see what it feels like. And, you know, maybe it, you have too much, um, like, conditioning or connotations around that to make it uh, feel uh, like a useful thing to do. But just try it and see. Okay. So... Uh, I was also inspired this week by um, hearing that Aung San Suu Kyi, the leader of Burma, um, was, uh, actually went and made her Nobel Prize um, speech. So she received the Nobel Prize in 1991, um, during which time she was incarcerated for 20 years right, in her home country. 
And so finally she was, she's now in the parliament and she was allowed to, to travel and she came and she made her uh, Nobel Prize speech. And I find her life very inspiring because she's someone who actually really did sort of let go in service to her country. And when she, uh, when she got married to her uh, husband who she met in England, uh, she told him, you know, I can marry you, but my, my uh, service is to my country, so if I'm ever called, then uh, I'll have to go. So he agreed sort of under those conditions. And uh, Although I think I read later that she thought it would be like she would have to start you know, libraries for children. She didn't think she was going to be incarcerated for 20 years or you know, become this world leader. And she clearly is a very bright and um, uh, capable woman. And I read this quote also from some people in Oxford. So she's going back to Oxford for the first time too, saying that, like, yeah, during that time she was a housewife, but she ran these exemplary birthday parties. They were like amazing birthday parties for her small children. You know, she's like the kind of birthday parties a world leader could run, you know, <laughs> like this. Um, but just her, her service to her country when she was called, she was just like, yeah, this is what I have to do. And uh, you know, being willing to give up her own wishes, including actually to be with her family, and her family also being willing to let go of their uh, need for her to be with them too. And her husband actually died without her present because they weren't allowing her to go back. Or if they did, she wouldn't have been able to come back to the country. Uh, so really like a heroic, uh, epic story in that way. But I think from all of this, you know, we don't have to be as giant uh, heroes, but there are moments every day in which we get the opportunity to practice humility, right? to practice seeing, like, oh, what is my wishes? Uh, even in small ways in conversations, like, oh, this is my opinion, and I think I'm really right. I think I'm better than other people. Right? Oh, okay. Or the trickier one, right? This is my opinion, and I'm worse. Right? Or, oh, yeah, I'm equal. Right? So look out for all of those different manifestations of, uh, of mana. So finally then, it, it actually calls on us to have compassion. Because as you notice this in yourself, and as you notice this in others, you can just see that we're all just playing out this conditioning patterns. You know? Except in the moments of wisdom, of clarity, of really being truly present, um, that's what's happening. And so that's actually what's happening most of the time in the world. It's like all of us just playing out these, these patterns. You know? uh, not just about listening to music, but about everything. Right? <laughs> And some of them are skillful and some of them are unskillful, right? So it just calls up a great deal of compassion and also resolve that, you know, all you can do is sort of plant the seeds for uh, the patterns of wholesomeness to arise more often uh, and for clear seeing to come up more often, right? And so just do that as much as you can and that's the best that we can do. So I offer those reflections for you on uh, humility and delusion and... um, We'll have a few minutes if anyone has any questions or comments you want to make, too. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for this wonderful, wonderful Dharma talk. I'm curious, did you eat the deviled egg? <laughs> <laughs> I did not eat the deviled egg. I mean, the voices of conditioning were too loud from, uh, you know... Uh, I didn't eat the deviled egg, and you know, but it was funny going through that dilemma. You know, I was driving with the egg, then I had to go to the parking garage and get a ticket, and I still have the deviled egg. And um, so I actually did toss the deviled egg. I thought about leaving it on the ground, hoping a dog would walk by. But then um, I did toss it. But I tried to toss it, you know, with the intention of, um, you know, may this feed whatever beings encounter it in the (laughs) in the process of that. The other thing about your reflection on that is whose voice do we hear yes. in our head? You know, how many voices are there 
and how do we separate out our voice from all those other voices that are in there at the same time giving us advice, telling us to do this, not to do this, have this, not to have that. Right, right. And actually, you know, even that question about, like, what is, quote-unquote, our voice? So, like, I would, I would suggest that maybe there's no such thing as our voice except our voice that is made up of all this composite of all these different things. And also, you know, that mysterious uniqueness that does manifest through us. So there's where also wisdom is helpful. Because to me, like, you know, my, my original thing was just like, oh, that's nice, this guy gave me an egg, I should eat it. But then... I actually think there is something to the wisdom voice of like many people have touched this egg and germ theory. So, you know, that's why I listen to that voice in this particular case. But maybe in another case I wouldn't. So, yeah. My question is about the monk in the parking lot. Mm. And did you, did it, in me, what would have come up was that I would want to tell him <laughs> my insight. Uh -huh. And that's not all, I mean, it could be done with humility. It could be, yeah. And not necessarily, but I was wondering if that arose in you. It, um, uh, I think that, you know, the, there, there, there did arise in me some irritation, like, but also actually irritation, but then also humor, because in some ways um, it's actually such a common scenario for me that um, this older guy was lecturing me. I mean, it's sort of like he's just, he was just totally playing out his conditioning, and he had no idea what I actually know or not know. You know, he's reacting to the form in this way. Um, but I actually have reflected that I, I'm actually now challenging myself as a teacher and a person to try to engage in some skillful way uh, to be able to point that out. Because uh, I notice myself being a little lazy also, you know, and there's a sort of, um, even in seeing that in someone else, but then sort of just being like, oh, I'll just let that go when there is something that I could point out, if we're both actually, you know, fellow dharma farers, that could be helpful, right? Now, of course, it's, it's a trickier one because it's like, here, this guy's already saying that he doesn't think I have that much to, to say, you know? He, like, it, like he's not, he's, he may not be able to hear it from me, right? Uh, so I think that also is then, like, when, when to spend the energy to do that or not, you know? And I, I think he said something like, um, you know, I guess it's good that people like you are teaching this kind of, you know, so you sort of, like, <laughs> But it was just funny. Because, I mean, it, the reason I, I thought it was funny, like it didn't actually, um, I guess my own con confidence in my understanding of the Dharma is enough that like no matter who says what, it doesn't, um, it's not going to make me feel like, oh, this monk said I shouldn't be teaching, you know, like, no, that's not it. So he doesn't uh, have effect like that. But uh, I could see there could be something helpful for me of even in some kind of, you know, wily coyote kind of just trickster way, um, messing with him about that so that the next time he encounters like a young female, he won't necessarily think, oh yeah, I know everything about who you are and this is who I am. So yeah, no, it's a good, it's a, it actually is a challenge for me in my own practice and teaching now to do that in a skillful way. Um, yeah. But I think if there's any trace of like me needing to then like, you know, pound him or then I wouldn't do it, but just, I feel like that's unskillful. So, but it's, it's a delicate thing to play with that. Uh, I have a question. Um, can you speak a little bit to the release or the liberation from maybe the comparing mind when you are in the not knowing state and when you're not in your projections? You know, what kind of something about the release? Do you mean like the um, the release, like uh, like complete release for that, or just in a momentary kind of? Uh... Just in a momentary kind of way that you said it's actually more fun or it's more liberating when you're yeah. not knowing. So. 
Yeah, yeah. Have you had any experience with that yourself? Um, yeah, just a bit when I'm sitting with someone and I'm not knowing or thinking about what I should say next and, you know, and not thinking about, oh, I should get an answer here. Uh -huh. Just listening to them. And then what is it like when you notice that and you're actually able to be present? Like, what's it your experience? It feels good, but I'm not sure I can trust it or, I, I don't know, I, yeah. there's something released, yeah. Yeah, so actually, you know, the, this mana, this, this pride, this comparing mind, um, is actually the tenth, it's like the, one of the last fetters on the path of enlightenment. So, you know, in this tradition of Buddhism, there's different stages of enlightenment that one goes where different things are released. Um, and this is in, the, in the, the sort of more advanced category that it's totally released. So one thing is like, you know, uh, feel and know the release when it happens, but also don't be disappointed if you still see it arising because, you know, that's <laughs> it's a deeply seated pattern, right? Which interestingly is different from uh, Sakayaditi, from the personality view, the view idea of a separate self, right? That view that there's a separate self, which is actually released in the first stage too. But anyway, to your point about this, um, is just seeing, feeling the freedom, like actually noticing more and more what it feels like in the stuckness state versus in the, the free state. And I think the more you can notice that, even sort of like a visceral level, like what that's like when you're like kind of stuck or, you know, even as you're describing very well, when you're in a conversation with someone and you're already thinking about what you think that they're going to say or uh, when you're thinking about your answer before listening to them, what they're actually saying, things like that. So just noticing that and then trying to, it's, it's a habit, it's a habit of mind, right? Then trying to train yourself to uh, relax and let go of that. And so the more we, we notice also when we're in the state of actually being present with someone, what that's like, then the more we'll be able to actually access that more, I think, you know, spaciousness. And then noticing one's particular habit. So for example, some people have a habit of interrupting, right? So a habit of interrupting often is that either you're bored with what someone's saying or like you think you already know, so you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to tell you the answer before you finish, right? So, you know, noticing whatever one's habit is. Or for some people, it's more quietly internal, you know, internally or you're doing that. So to notice how to how to work with that too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just um, really enjoyed the part about humility. I guess I have a comment more than a question, but yeah. it reminds me of something I read last summer um, when I was um, visiting the Black Hills of South Dakota. I picked up a book on Lakota Sioux spirituality, and um, there was a chapter about humility. And the <coughs> the author who was a uh, um, who was of the Lakota Sioux. Um, actually used the example of crazy horse and he said that um, in the Lakota tradition they would actually pick their leaders based on who is the most humble mm. there was not this political process where it's all me 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 and I'm going to do this and this and this <laughs> and they would actually go and, and, and they would avoid the prideful people they said the prideful people wouldn't make good decisions they, their ego would get in the way and they would actually go and approach someone and they said like History remembers Crazy Horse much like I kind of think of him as this individual kind of badass, renegade guy. But the actual way that Native Americans remember him was painfully humble, almost to the point of shyness. Mm. And they said he couldn't, um, he couldn't even walk through a village and look people in the eye. He was so humble. Mm. Um, and I just think of all the political, our, our politicians seem to get into all these scandals, these very narcissistic right. scandals. And you look at that process, like who's going to go through that? It's going to be a very prideful narcissistic person and it, it just right. is, it just um i guess it just struck home to me like how important this is for yeah. all of us yeah thank you yeah i think the system here causes and conditions again so it seems like the systems of political <laughs> political uh, uh machinations don't necessarily favor the humble yeah who rises to the top right yeah so yeah
Oh, back there. Me someone there, and then also back in the corner, yeah. Yesterday I was on the phone with someone who was teaching me something on the computer, and at a certain point I completely lost track, mm. and uh, I, I was almost in tears. And what I realized in listening to your talk was that I was too arrogant to be humble enough just to be there and take in what I could. Mm. And if I had been able to just release that, I could have enjoyed the lesson. Right. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of suffering from uh, oh, my yeah, yes. that. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I was just going to ask, can you hear me? Uh, if you, I was just going to ask if you could speak a little bit more about humility, for example, if you're, you know, you were talking about Crazy Horse, but if you are a manager and you are responsible for making decisions... You know, how do you how do you bridge that sense of trying to make people feel engaged, but also at times just needing to make the call or you know running really fast with things? Yeah, this is, it's a it, very good and interesting question, and sort of not a simple answer to that. Uh, and some of it, I think, is just in the cultivation of that state of uh, of humility or of selflessness or of. Uh, it's described as like, what is the appropriate response, right? So appropriate response in this case is different than appropriate response in, in that case. So then I think it's helpful to be able to tune in more and more, um, even more than sort of getting like sort of the rule book about what to do in each of the cases to actually the state from which the decisions are being made, you know, from which the, like, the decision maker, like who is manifesting right now as decision maker? So is it the like... Um, I need to control things and I need to run things? Or is it like this uh, understanding of what's coming together and then what needs to be done appropriately? And even if it's that more selfless place, that doesn't mean that the decision won't be a strong one and a clear one and a decisive one and sometimes one that can look from the outside like it's um, like, oh, I, I'm doing this. But uh, you know internally like where that comes from, sort of the intention from which it comes, right? And then also I think as a manager, as a leader, just as a human being, it also is important to recognize like, oh yeah, and I make mistakes. I make mistakes like a lot and that's just my own patterns and conditioning and doing the best I can. And so then being willing even to be humble with that and to be willing to acknowledge when you do and uh, be able to then, I think that actually builds trust with people if they're like, okay, you know, this person is willing to acknowledge when they do something that actually has harmful impact and then I can trust that uh, I can trust them more that their intention is there to do good, I think. So, so I think we've come to the end of our time. Um, so I don't remember, do you have any closing things you do? All right, so let's just sit for a moment, then we'll uh, share the blessings from our practice here. So appreciating the opportunity to come together as a Sangha and reflect on the teachings of freedom, liberation. Appreciating the teachings themselves coming down from around the world, 2,600 years to us here in our modern day facility here in Redwood City. And appreciating our own wholesome intentions to come and to practice Dharma and our own positive intentions for awakening, for our own benefit and for the benefit of all that we encounter.
May we all be peaceful and happy. May we all be strong and healthy. May we all be safe. May we all live with joy. So thank you.